I want you to notice Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Please understand that the book of Hebrews, the theme of the book is the superiority of Jesus. Jesus Christ is better. You'll read that over and over again in the book. And from the very word all the way through the end of the book of Hebrews, this writer is giving example after example of why and how Jesus is superior and how Jesus is better. Better than what? The writer knew that these Hebrew Christians were being persecuted and pressured into returning back, not just to sin, but to returning back to the old system of Judaism. This system of the old covenant. They were being threatened. They were being persecuted. They were being manipulated. Well, why don't we just return back? Why don't we just go back to the old way, to the old covenant? Why can't we just... What would be so wrong with going back and yoking back up with the temple? What would be so wrong with going back and offering more sacrifices? What would be the problem with that? And the writer of the book of Hebrews, and we don't know who the human author was. We know who the divine author was, and that's God. But the reason he's giving this is to encourage those believers who are being tempted and pressured to return back to their old belief system. Returning back to their old way, their old life. To return back, and if I could use this word, to legalism. To a system of righteousness that was based on their works and their deeds. Well, why can't we embrace both? That was their thinking. Why can't we embrace the new covenant and the old covenant? And this writer hits it head on. And all through the book, he's showing how superior Jesus is. Jesus, why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. Jesus is the one who, according to the plan of the Father, Jesus would be the complete personification and the perfection of the old covenant and he would fulfill that and begin and initiate this new covenant. It's not by works that we're redeemed. It's not by our own righteousness. It's not through the sacrifices of bulls and goats. It's not through their shed blood. It's not through faithful obedience To the earthly high priest. No, 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 no. It's not through going back to the temple time and time and time again. It's not through offering incense on an earthly altar. That is not it. In fact, if you study the book of Hebrews, you will understand that they were committing spiritual suicide if they were to return back to the old way. That's why in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, Paul is very crystal clear, and he admonishes those Galatian believers. He said, and I urge you to return not back. Don't go back to that yoke of bondage. He wasn't just talking about sin. He was talking about this religious outward movement that was centered on behavior and that was centered on your works and on your deeds and on your outward righteousness. That was the focus. And from page one in Hebrews all the way through the end, over and over in every chapter and every verse, he simply says, Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better. So when we get to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, notice what he says here. 
Now when these things were thus ordained. And I'm in the wrong verse. It would help if I was in chapter 8. I am now. Verse 6. I was in chapter 9. But I knew something was wrong there. But now hath he obtained. Speaking of Jesus. A more excellent ministry. By how much also he, Jesus, is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, listen to what he said, verse 7. If the first testament, the first contract, the first covenant had been faultless, stop right there. What he is saying is that the first covenant was not faultless. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute, preacher. Are you saying our Old Testament has errors in it? No, friend, that's not what I'm saying. Listen carefully. The Old Testament, as in the Hebrew Bible, it is faultless. That's not what he is referring to here. He's referring to the system that was given. That is what was not faultless. That had limitations. It needed to be improved. But I thought God is the one that gave it. Yes, he did. We'll find out in just a moment why he gave it, even though it was faultless. Even though it was limited. you got to stay with me, because if you zone out and snore and snooze right now, you're going to miss the whole thing. Don't do it. Don't do it, brother. Stay with me. Verse 7, he says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. In other words, there's no reason God would have given us a new covenant, a better covenant, a second covenant, if the first covenant would have been perfect. But it's not perfect. So verse 8, for finding fault with them, or finding fault with these symbols and these representations of the first covenant, all that he's talked about in Hebrews, by the way, He saith, God saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There it is. I'll make a new will. I'll make a new contract. I'll make a new testament with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they continue not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind. And I'll write them in their hearts. Stop right there. What he's saying is that now, from now on, that new covenant, that new covenant as opposed to the old covenant, the old covenant was external. It dealt with the outward. But now I'm going to put this in their hearts. I'm going to make it internal. Keep reading. He says, and I will be, verse 10, I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, hey, know the Lord. And here's why God said, because all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant. He hath made the first. Here it is. 
old. He's made it old. He's made it where it is vanishing away. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. You're like, CP, I'm as confused as a termite and a yo-yo. What is he saying here? He's saying in verse 13 that the old covenant, because of Jesus, and by the way, God never intended for the old system to be it. He never intended for people to be saved. Listen carefully. God never intended people to be saved by the law-keeping prescribed in the Old Testament. We'll read in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2, that the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. Wait a minute, I thought that was a New Testament concept. It is. Guess where the New Testament writers picked it up? They picked it up from the Old Testament, from Hebrews, uh, from Habakkuk. Listen carefully. God never saved anybody. Listen, God never saved anybody because of good works. Nobody has ever been saved because of keeping the law. And you're not going to be saved by keeping the law. Now, why is that? Because you can't keep it perfectly. There's no person that's ever lived apart from Jesus Christ that could ever keep the law perfectly. It says here and tells us in this passage in Hebrews that Jesus' office of high priest is more excellent than the the Levitical high priest because the covenant is better. It's established on better promises. The old covenant referred to earthly things, the new covenant to heavenly things. The old covenant has promises of secular good. The new covenant has promises of spiritual and eternal good, eternal blessings. It's interesting here in verse 6 that the word for mediator, the word for mediator used to describe Jesus Christ. It says in verse 6, by how much also he is the mediator of a better, of a better covenant. The word mediator here means one in the middle. We'd say it means the middleman. One that interposes, one that intervenes between parties. Not only between persons at a distance, but people who were at enmity and at odds with one another. He goes between God and the sinner. Jesus Christ, the mediator. One writer said, God being so highly injured by and offended with the sins of the unbeliever and the sins of man. Therefore, Jesus mediates between the two. And I want you to listen to what Hebrews 7 verse 22 says. It uses a very interesting word. Hebrews 7 22, listen carefully. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Now hang with me. What does the word surety mean? We don't use that word much today. It literally, in the, in the Greek language, it referred to a bondsman. One who makes a guaranteed pledge on behalf of somebody else. One who ensures that the promise is going to be fulfilled. Hebrews 7.22 Jesus was made a surety of a better covenant, a better testament. 
It's used only this once in the New Testament, even though it's found many times in ancient legal documents. And here's the idea behind it. That Jesus as our surety, Jesus as our bondsman, Jesus as the one who guarantees a pledge on our behalf, he ensures that the covenant will be honored. He comes between an offended, holy, righteous God and sinful humans. And he is the middleman. He is the go-between. He is the mediator. He is the surety. He makes this pledge both ways. He makes this pledge from us to God. And he makes the pledge from God to us. He assures the Father that his justice will be fully satisfied. And he assures us, the sinner, that God's promises of forgiveness and restoration will be applied to us. He's our surety. He's the one who makes the covenant possible. About verse 7, one writer said, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. If the first covenant could have done it, then there wouldn't have been a second covenant. But it wasn't faultless. In fact, verse 8 says, finding fault with it. And then the rest of the passage, all the way down through verse 12, is quoted directly from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah, even in the Old Testament, was promising that a new covenant was coming. What's all this about? Preacher, why did God give us the law to begin with? Why did he give us the old covenant then? What's the intent of the law? Well, if you read Galatians and other passages, God tells us why. You see, God's original design in the old covenant, according to Galatians 3.24, listen to what it said, wherefore the law, the old covenant, was our, and what's the word he uses? Our schoolmaster. To bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. You see, God's design for the old covenant ritual system was that it should be as a schoolmaster leading us and preparing men for Christ. The word schoolmaster literally means a servant who was responsible to take the children to school. So what was it trying to teach us? Here's what the Old Covenant teaches us. Stay with me. That we cannot earn righteousness or favor with God through law-keeping or works of righteousness. A.T. Robertson said that Christ is our schoolmaster and the law as a pedagogue kept watch over us until we came to Christ. And it brought us to Christ because it brought us to the end of our own righteousness. It brought us to Jesus because it taught us and teaches us we cannot keep all of the law. It's impossible. Even if you can, it does nothing to transform the inside of a man. Jesus made that perfectly clear when he addressed the Pharisees when he says that what is unrighteous about you is not your unwashed hands. What is unrighteous about all of us, he said, speaking about us as men and humans and sinful people, is our hearts. Our hearts are wicked. 
Our hearts need to be transformed before anything else can be transformed. And it doesn't matter how much money we give, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. It doesn't matter how many rules you subscribe to and how careful you are not to do this and not to do that. You cannot, no man can generate personal righteousness with God through any type of law keeping. That's the words of Jesus. So this passage tells us that we have a better high priest. We have a better sanctuary. We have a better sacrifice. We have better promises. Everything in the old covenant was symbolic. Even down to Moses and Aaron and the Levites and the high priest and the sacrifices and all the ritual and all the regulation and all the specifications God gave. Even in the design of the tabernacle, even in the colors and in the shape of it and in the cloth that was used for the tents and the curtains and all that, even the types of sacrifices. And we don't have time today to talk about all the picture and symbolism And shadow, it points to the real thing, the real one. I know this is a silly illustration. I don't know if you realize this or not. I don't know if you can see it. I hold in my hand the space shuttle. I mean, this is the space shuttle. You say, how do you know that? Well, that's what it says right here. It's a space shuttle discovery. I mean, it has the American flag. It has the United States. It has the NASA symbol. It has wheels. It has the little, you know, blast-off thingies, exhaust, whatever you call that, jet propulsion. It's got this little thingy right here. You airplane people know what that is. It's got wings. It's got a tail. It's got a nose. It has windows has landing gear, has a hard outer shell. I don't know if you realize or not, but I'm holding the space shuttle right here in my hand. Looks like the space shuttle, feels like the space shuttle, has the same colors of the space shuttle. I want to ask you something. Is this really the space shuttle? No. No. Looks like it. It's a replica, right? It's a model, right? It's a scale of it. It's not the space shuttle. It's a small, tiny, minuscule replica type. It's an inferior imitation of something that is on an astronomically larger and better scale. So it is with the old covenant. Those sacrifices and all those lambs that were slain, they never took away anybody's sin. All they did was point. All they did was represent something so infinitely superior but it put a taste in the mouth of those that were there and it pointed and gave direction to the ultimate fulfillment of all the shadows and all the types that we see in the Old Testament. And that was perfectly and finally 
fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And all God's people said, amen about that. You see, the old covenant was symbolic. Everything about it poured into the one to come who would be the fulfillment and embodiment and personification of the perfect sacrifice who would once and for all take away the sins of the world and infinitely satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old System was just figure. It was just shadow. It was just a tiny replica. It was never intended. It was just the little tiny model of a space shuttle. It was never intended to be used to get anybody to outer space. The Old Testament sacrifices in the Old Testament way and the Old Testament requirements were never ever intended to take away anybody's sin and get them closer to heaven or closer to Jesus. It was just a picture, just a post sign that pointed people to the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ who came and fulfilled and initiated the new covenant. And my dear precious friend, that is why we call the gospel message the gospel. That's why it's good news because it not only sets us free from sin, it sets us free from a life of trying to live completely righteous as a means of earning our own salvation. Because that cannot happen. The new covenant was the sufficiency. It was the fulfillment of the old covenant. So in closing this morning, what's the difference in the old covenant and the new covenant? If you're still with me, say amen. The old covenant, here we is. Number, here we is. Here we are. Number one. Hey, I feel some preach coming on. All right. Number one, the old covenant was physical. A physical temple, a physical tabernacle, physical sacrifices. The old covenant was physical while the new covenant is spiritual. That's why there's no more temple. And... and Number two, the old covenant was external. It was outward focused. Notice how much the Old Testament focuses on the outward deeds. The outward requirements. If that sacrifice, whether it be of a lamb, a goat, a bull, a dove, a pigeon. If it wasn't just right, it was not accepted. It was all outward, 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 outward. But the new covenant is internal. It deals with the heart. You see, God knows that behavior modification will never bring righteousness. It's not about behavior modification. It's about behavior transformation. That's why, and by the way, I'll say it again. I am a separatist. I am a fundamentalist. But remember, just because you're a fundamentalist or a separatist, that doesn't mean that you have any man-earned, man-generated, self-generated righteousness with God. You can keep all the rules until the cows come home. That's not going to transform your biggest problem. That's your heart. And that's my biggest problem. 
That's why we need to be careful that while we teach rules and while we teach principles and while we have policies, that we don't get so policy and rule-oriented that we fail to teach our kids and our children and our young people and our teenagers and everybody else. You don't earn personal righteousness with God. You don't earn brownie points with Jesus by keeping and following the rules. Number three, the old covenant was temporary while the new covenant is eternal. You see, there came a day when the tabernacle was done. There came a day when the temple in A.D. 70 was knocked to the ground and ground into fine powder by the Roman army. It's temporary. But the new covenant stands forever. You see, those bulls and those goats by the tens and hundreds of thousands through those hundreds of years, there's no telling how many sacrifices were made. And they would have kept having to make the sacrifices had Jesus not come. His was one sacrifice, once and for all. Number four, the old covenant was limited. It did not have the ability to transform. It could not fully satisfy the righteous justice of a holy God. It was limited. It was not faultless. It was faulty. While the new covenant is infinite, it can do all of that. And then number five, the old covenant was impossible, impossible for man to fulfill. While the new covenant was fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. He's the mediator. He's the surety. And the reason God honors us as his children is because we go through our mediator, Christ Jesus Never forget Romans 3.20, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Galatians 2.16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might not be justified by the faith of, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, Old Testament law, your law or my law. By the works of the law shall no man be justified. That's why any type of formalism, rule keeping, outward righteousness can never make you holy. That's why, my dear friend, most of the world's religions, and in fact all of them, if it's a religion, and I don't even call salvation and Christianity, biblical Christianity, it's not a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. All of the world religions come back to one thing. You and I doing. Doing. Doing, doing, doing. I don't care if it's Catholicism. I don't care if it's Eastern Orthodox. I don't care if it's the whatever. It's man-centered. It's doing, it's doing. The cults, the false religions are about doing, doing. I don't care if it's Judaism. It's about doing. It's about what you and I can do to earn righteousness. No, 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 friend. What you saw this morning when those five precious folks were baptized, that was not about doing. And if you think that baptism washed away anybody's sins, my dear friend, you are grossly mistaken. 
if you think your church membership or you being here today in church or singing a song or a certain type of song or giving money in the offering plate or running a bus route or working in top town or doing whatever you do, teaching a class that has nothing to do with your personal righteousness. Everything now that we do as a Christian is because of the righteousness that Jesus Christ has given us. I'm not doing squat. I'm not doing anything to earn my salvation or to pay him back. I couldn't pay him back, and I can't earn it. That that I do for Jesus today, I do thank God with a joyful heart to show and express to others and to him how much I love him. Formalism, rule-keeping, outward righteousness can never make you holy. Stop trying to earn favor with God through it. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, I sinned as a Christian, so I have to, boy, I better go do such and such and make it right. Well, if you making it right means that you have to go do a good deed, that's that's not what it's about. God in heaven is not operating by a scale system where your good deeds, even as a believer, outweigh your bad deeds. Oh, my dear friend, that is so messed up. And we've bought into the wrong philosophy and the wrong idea. And we think that even though we know we would say that we were saved by the righteousness of Christ and not our good works, my friend, you are covered and you're kept by the very same thing that saved you to begin with. You're not kept and covered by your good works. You're kept and covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Quoted in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, we've already quoted Habakkuk 2, 4. The just, the righteous, shall live by faith. It's by trust. It's not by effort. It's not by works. It's by trust in Jesus alone. And I close with Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. You may want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 9, 11 through 15. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, Listen to what the word says. By a greater and a more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. Not of this construction. Neither by the the blood of goats and calves. But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, if it sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, the outward, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall that purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he, Jesus, is the mediator. Of the new covenant, the New Testament, that by means of his death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So here's the takeaway, and we're going to go home. Listen carefully. Rest in grace. I don't know how else to say it. Rest in grace. Rest in Jesus' grace. 
That means multiple things. It applies, first of all, to those here this morning that don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I say this to you in love, my dear precious friend. The reason Jesus gave his life on the cross and the reason he shed his blood is to pay your penalty and mine. And he is that middleman. And by faith, if you repent of your sins and you trust Jesus Christ today, and you give your life to him, you trust in what he's done for you already. It's done. D-O-N-E. It's not about you doing. It's about what Christ has done. It's not about membership. It's not about baptism. Not about money. Not about your good deeds. Because we don't have many or any at all. It's about him. Are you trusting 100% in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Are you saved? And then I say to the believers today, this applies to how you view yourself as a child of God. I'm not preaching a cheap, easy believism. Hear me. I am telling you this morning, and I'm afraid many of us in this room don't know who we are in Jesus Christ. We don't realize the grand and lofty and glorious position and possession that is ours in Christ as his children. And I say this today. I'm afraid I'm looking in the faces of dear people and dear children of God who believe that we earn God's smile and God's favor by our own works of righteousness. And I want to say this today. You read the book of Ephesians. You have God's smile. You have God's favor as his child because you're born again. Stop trying to earn more of his love. You can't send away your salvation, and you can't send away God's love for you. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more than he does right now. Nothing. And there's nothing you can do as bad as it is to make him love you less than he does right now. Live in that. Live from the overflow of that. Live in the joy and gratitude and the grace of that. Realize that when you wake up tomorrow morning and you set your feet on the ground, realize that you've awakened to a fresh dose of the grace and goodness and faithfulness and favor of God on your life. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to measure up as a believer. You're in Christ. You measure up already because God is viewing you through the blood of his own son. Live in that. Go forward in that victory. You don't have to earn and gain your own victory. It's already been accomplished through Jesus. Walk in it. Live in it. 
you live your life in the joy and victory that's yours. Claim that as a child of God.